Good afternoon. I am Kelly Brown Douglas, Dean of the Episcopal Divinity School at Union Theological Seminary here in New York City. Thank you for joining us for another in our series of Just Conversations, where we engage issues of racialized inequities intrinsic to our nation and our collective responsibility to create a more just future. Today's Just Conversation is another in a series of conversations with a member of a cohort of 12 scholars, faith leaders, artists, and activists who have come together in a project sponsored by the Henry Luce Foundation Grant to reflect on religion and racial justice, expanding the moral imaginary through film, and to share their work and research. But it is my pleasure and distinct privilege to have joining me today, Dr. Ashan Crawley. Dr. Crawley is an Associate Professor of Religious Studies in African American and African Studies at the University of Virginia, where he teaches in the areas of Black Studies, Performance Theory and Sound Studies, Philosophy and Theology, Black Feminists and Queer Theory. He is also the author of two award-winning books, Black Pentecostal Breath, The Aesthetics of Possibility, as well as The Lonely Letters. He is currently working on a book about the Hammond organ and Black life, which we'll talk about later. But for now, Dr. Crawley, thank you so much for joining me in this conversation. Thank you for having me. It's always a joy to speak with you and, and learn. So I'm here for that. <laughs> well, and it's mutual. So let's jump right in because there's a lot I hope we can cover in this short time. Dr. Crawley, this weekend, the architect of Black Studies, as he has been described, Dr. John Bracey, joined the ancestors. When I first heard of his death, I first, of course, took time to reflect on how much we owe him. He made space for us, for people like you and me, to do the work we are doing. Yeah. And then my thoughts went to the current attack on critical race theory and the teaching of Black history in classrooms. And I wondered what Dr. Bracey would think. And as Dr. Bracey was a member of the W.E.B. Du Bois Department of African-American Studies at UMass, I also thought of Du Bois' observation post-Reconstruction when he said that the time that Black people stood for a brief moment in the sun and then moved back towards slavery. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Crawley, your thoughts on <laughs> where we find ourselves today with a passing of a generation mm -hmm. who brought us to this place at the same time that their pioneering work and enduring insights are being attacked. Um, again, thank you for having me. I'm really just happy to be virtually here. Um, you know, I teach uh, Souls of Black Folks in my intro to African-American studies course. Typically, I'm teaching that course this year, 1900 to 2005, or to the present, I'm sorry. Um, I typically teach it um, beginning with the Souls of Black Folk, um, but the past two years I've taught it with graphic novels and instead of comic, I'm sorry, graphic novels instead of different kinds of um, critical texts. And um, I really appreciate thinking with Du Bois mm -hmm. um, about Black studies because one of the things that I think he makes available to us via that text, um, something that's so deeply, I think, evident in that text, which I think speaks to our moment 
and speaks to Bracey's passing is for me, the Souls of Black Folk is mostly a text about grief. Yeah. Um, grief about a kind of world that was anticipated mm-hmm. post-emancipation that did not emerge in the way that uh, there was a lot of hope and a lot of um, energy and a lot of um, possibility that was posited post-emancipation. And it seems that one of the things Du Bois is doing by um, walking around and talking to people and learning and thinking about religion and spirituality and place is that he is he is going through it seems to me a grieving process of what was promised but had not been made manifest to use good churchy language that did not emerge that did not come um to fruition and it seems to me to be so indicative of our times now um i sometimes cannot pay close attention to what is happening in Florida, not because I do not care, not because I'm callous, but because the sense of overwhelm that one might have because it seems that we are in the same place that we were, that we have technological advances and developments, but technology is not actually the marker of of humanity or our capacity to be kind and generous and charitable and caring for one another, that often, if the, or not often, if we do not change the epistemology under which um, things are developed, including technologies, we will just continue to use those technologies in the service of the ongoing reproduction of our political and economic order, which is deeply harmful and deeply uh, exploitative. And so it's sad to me. <laughs> That there is one, the kind of energy that has been put into the making sure that K through 12 doesn't teach critical race theory, which anyone actually knows is not actually taught in K through 12 schools, but the ways that a language has been able to been marshaled in order to say really what we're saying is you can't teach anything about black folks that that has been um, there was, you know, they've played a long game to ensure that they have this kind of velocity with regard to making claims, making statements, and just saying it over and over again until someone believes that it's true. And so for me, I feel like we can grieve the loss of Dr. Bracey, and also we can grieve this moment because we are, it seems to me, in the same kind of grievable moment that Du Bois was experiencing when he's writing these different essays that would go into the souls of Black folk, that we are a part of like this long historical post-1492 moment. We are still a part of the same epistemological understanding of humans um, that categorize us according to concepts like race um, in order to produce marginalization and in order to actually produce um, practices of exploitation, violence, and harm. And so until we actually uh, interrupt uh, the, the inertia of this political, economic, epistemological long moment, we will, I think we will continue to grieve. Um, grieving is necessary, but also we have to uh, do the kind of work that is necessary to move us to a different kind of epistemological Um, way to relate to oneself and to other people so that we do not have to have these conversations again over and over. Yeah. Yeah, I like the way in which 
you characterize not simply W.E.B. Du Bois' work. Uh, and I think that I like that characterization of it being reflective of this sort of post-emancipatory, post-reconstruction grieving, yeah. even yeah. as he includes yeah. in the souls of Black folk, the grieving over the loss of his own son, right? So I like I like the way you have uh, sort of characterized that because that's those two pivotal kind of chapters, the first chapter and that last chapter. There's a fly, uh, sorry. Yeah, I, I saw you, <laughs> you waving the fly. Uh, fly. The, uh, the, that's, that's nothing but like live Facebook live conversation right but uh uh but i like that the way you yeah. bracketed that and uh, uh because it was this moment perhaps of grief and as you also suggest grief often uh emerges out of even as it is a catalyst for trauma or reflection yeah, yeah, rather of trauma yeah, so yeah. this black trauma and so i relate with you when you say that it's hard. It was hard for me to watch and listen to. And I don't even read articles on what's going on down in Florida because it's like I can't. It's traumatizing. It's overwhelming, yeah, which yeah. leads me to if it's traumatizing for us and we know, right, Dr. Crawley, and we we write on this stuff and yeah, do the yeah, work and yeah. yet we can't even read read it and listen to the news. I think about Black children. Yeah, This yeah. weekend, there wasn't enough to read about Dr. Bracey's or to hear about Dr. Bracey's death in the midst of all of this. I also read of a recent study that was published by the American Journal of Psychiatry. It was CNN uh, and other news outlets were talking about this. It was conducted by researchers at Harvard. And they found that stressors like economic hardship, poverty, and yeah. systemic racism play a significant role in the lives of Black children, of course, who are disproportionately impacted by both and can lead to the development of mental health issues for them at, uh, at a later age. Now, clearly, we find ourselves, just as you've spoken as a Black community in a time of, I said, often say crisis, but I like the, the way you have captured this, a time of grief and trauma. Mm -hmm. uh, to, uh, nothing more uh, than the COVID pandemic coming together with the ongoing violent pandemic that is white supremacist anti-Blackness uh, yeah. points yeah. to that. Yeah. yeah, There's no segment, as these studies have pointed out, of our community for whom this is most concerning than our children. Yeah. yeah. Now you have said that listening of all things to the Hammond organ mm -hmm. and the way it is performed in black churches can yeah. give us a cue and clue mm -hmm. into the ways in which black people have responded to crises in particular from the vantage point of our children and yeah. how we should respond to crises uh, in relationship to our children. So. Can you talk about that? What does the ham and organ tell us about how to respond to this current crisis of grief and trauma, yeah. and particularly focusing on our children who studies tell us are really going to be hampered by this uh, as they grow in age? You know, I, I think about multiple things. I think about how my brother and I, um, children of Church of God in Christ, um, 
father is a pastor and, you know, mother is a missionary evangelist preacher. And I think about how we used to play church after yeah. <laughs> the church. Even like, I as an Episcopalian did that. <laughs> you, you play, like playing church is like a thing that we do and it's right. something that we really enjoyed. And it's something that allowed our imagination to dance and to play. And I think about the kind of playfulness of Black church that I really, really loved. I never hated going to church because it was always a kind of fun thing to, you know, look at that person speaking in tongues, look at that person running around, that there was something really joyful about young people who were both a part of the community, but who were not actually expected to do the things that the adults were doing because we were mostly just kids not paying attention. And like the kinds of social worlds that we created as young people while watching our parents engage in worship practice while also learning those worship um, behaviors, patterns, and practices. But there were always these young people who were like uh, just kind of geniuses. And I'm thinking specifically of this musician. I think he perhaps just um, uh, celebrated a birthday. I follow him on Instagram. I think he's 22 years old now, mm. but his name is Jaden Arnold. And he began playing the Hammond, I don't know, as a very, very young person. He must have been five or six mm. years old at most. And I don't think he was going to like classes to learn uh, um, theory, music theory, but his facility with the instrument and the fact that people trusted him enough to have a facility with the instrument so that he could provide music and space for the congregation to sing, for this congregation to praise and worship, that he was, he became an integral part of the worship practices as a very, very young person. There's a video of him um, on YouTube from when he was maybe eight or nine years old playing at one of the um, Church of God in Christ national um, conventions and everyone is like stunned by this young person who not only plays but plays really really well and I started to think about and I continue to think about young people who play the Hammond organ as an example of and there was a person when I was growing up in New Jersey who um, had gone to this church named Bethesda Church of God in Christ and the uh, the original pastor of the church there was the person who was a kid who would bang on the piano and some of the church folks would say, get him off the piano. He don't know what he's doing. And the pastor would say, let him learn how to play. And like he allowed for the church to be a space of experimentation, trusting mm -hmm. that the young person was interested enough in order to learn how to play the instrument. And he became one of, and still is, one of the best musicians who I'm forgetting his name, actually, um, Joe Wilson, he became one of the best musicians in New Jersey, sort of in the kind of Black Baptist, Pentecostal, non-denominational circles. Like he's very sought after musician because of his facility with the instrument, the things that he was able to invent, but it started as a young person. Mm -hmm. And so I began to or one of the things that I experienced as a young person, and when I began to reflect on it as a much, much older person, is that there is a kind of trust that we can give to young people, that we can allow for their imagination to play, to dance, to, to lead us. Mm -hmm. And thinking with this particular, this very specific instrument invented in 1930s, 
thinking with this instrument about how people who are young have been allowed to literally play it, to imagine with it, to think with it, for me provides a model for how we can think about not resilience, but how we can think about the kind of social world in which we exist, which is anti-Black racist, it's colonialist, it's anti-queer, and how people have gathered in community with others in order to resist, to fight back against, to contend against, and to overcome those um, seemingly inert forces. And so it seems to me that one of the things that a report like the kind that you are referencing, I did not see it, but the report that the kind that you're referencing compels me to say is that we have to really think about how we can gather in community with others in very deep and transformative ways because that is what is seemingly missing. That is what is seemingly going to be necessary. It has always been something that has been necessary and it's something that we're, and it's not something that can be held to a doctrinal confessional community. It has to be another kind of gathering that recognizes that people identify variously across religious spectra, that everyone ain't Christian and everyone ain't Christian like the way you're Christian. Right. Everyone ain't Muslim, everyone ain't Muslim like the way you are. And so it's really necessary, or everyone's, you know, or some people agnostic, but everyone like me ain't agnostic the way that you are. And so how can we gather in our variance and our difference and one of the ways that I think we can gather in our variance and our difference is by honoring the complexity of young people, allowing them to speak about things that have harmed them, things that make them sad, things, they're complex individuals who have emotions and stop and, and, know, and not treating young people as if the things that they experience, the things that they carry are unimportant because they are young, but instead saying, no, we have to actually pay attention to them so that we can, uh, so that we can together as community contend against the forces that are violent against them. So, wow, and thanks for that. And, and couple, several things come to mind as you were speaking. One, uh, the role in which music has always played, right? Mm -hmm. Not simply in uh, Black Christian circles and Black faith circles, but in the Black community, particularly, mm -hmm. uh, I guess, in, in Black church communities. Uh, and when you talk about allowing young people to express themselves and the way in which they've done that through music, which often happens in Black church, I have images of, you know, little Black kids, my nephew, who uh, his father was a preacher in a, a Pentecostal-like tradition, uh, very young on the drums, yep, right? Yep, yep. Uh, and leading the whole congregation yep. to choir on the drums. And I'm like, yep. oh, I didn't even know AJ knew rhythm, but they had trusted him to do that on the drums. But allowing music as a vehicle for expression and allowing mm -hmm. uh, the ways in which our young people express themselves, be it through music, dance, you know, we always have the praise groups, et cetera, praise dancers, et cetera, in the church. But I also, as you were talking about that and thinking about the role of the organ, yeah. the Hammond organ and music in the church, it has also been a way in which uh, communities within the Black church uh, have been marginalized, yeah. uh, right? And, and, and stereotyped, et cetera. And so particularly the queer community. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, they're the musicians, they're the ones on the Hammond organ, they're the ones in the choir, right? The Black church hadn't been so good when it comes to matters. Uh -huh. 
That's an understatement. And so I can just open up. You and I both have talked about this, but you know, so good on matters of sexuality, let alone uh, um, queer sexuality. And you talk about the Hammond organ in relationship to that and in relationship to what we've learned from the AIDS crisis, which the Black church wasn't good on. so what what does there's another side to the Hammond organ uh, and what it tells us about the black church. So what does that tell us now in this regard, especially Dr. Crowley, when we know that our queer black youth, particularly trans youth, right? Yeah, yeah. Whose lives and mental health are most in danger, disproportionate rates of suicide, disproportionate rates of homelessness because of the Black church in so many regards. So what's the Hammond organ tell us about that? Well, uh, it's, you know, as everything, it's complicated and also simple. Um, I'm writing um, a book um, currently about, at first I thought it was just a history of the Hammond organ and a kind of simplistic, you know, this is how Black churches use the hand and organ. This is musicians. They sound good, right? Great. <laughs> and the more I researched, the, the more it felt boring, <laughs> honestly boring, and not really that interesting because there was another story that I, that was there, but I wasn't sort of not intentionally trying to not tell. It's just one that I didn't feel that I had permission to tell. Mm. And I was a a fellow at the Institute of Sacred Music at Yale um, 2018 to 2019. And I'd spent the year there working on this project and writing a whole lot of things that will not be in any book because we also did a symposium. They gave us funding so we could do a symposium about the Hammond organ. And so in April of 2019, we had a symposium and I was able to invite speakers um, to give talks about the Hammond and the Black church. And one of the presenters, my dear friend, Fredara Hadley, um, who teaches at Juilliard, um, presented. And at the end of her talk, she said, these words are not a part of my um, official talk, but she said that she was thankful that so many of us were talking about queerness with regards to the Black church and musicians, because as she said, she grew up in the 80s and in the 90s, and she remembers so many musicians dying and there being no real conversation about what that loss meant. And I've said this to her probably a thousand times now, but when she said that, I said, oh, that's what the book is. Like, that is what the book is supposed to be about. And so I've been since April of 2019, really um, trying to think about in a sort of slow way, what were the processes that led to, what were the failures of local state and national or federal governance? And also what were the failures of theology um, in particular in um, black church spaces that led to the, the crisis moment of the 1980s where you have people who are dying from a disease, from a virus, who at most people would do is um, say something about them being sinners, which is the reason why they died. Um, Or, and at the other end, there was a lot of silence about these musicians, these choir directors and these singers who were dying, these people who were making very evident 
and apparent the fact of queerness in Black church. They're not the only queer people. Um, not, not all queer people um, contracted HIV and died of AIDS complications, but because of the uncounted but very much known and felt number of musicians that were dying. There's one article that was written in 1993 um, in the Delaware Evening News, and it was about um, the Delo It was about the Delaware Valley, and so it was about musicians between Philadelphia and um, and and. Dover, or what's that other place? It's another city in Delaware whose name Wilmington, is maybe. Wilmington and yeah. Wilmington, Delaware. Um, it's about these musicians, and about 24 musicians died within two years. Right. Um, musicians, um, choir directors, and singers, men all. And if you think about a small area and that many musicians dying, and you think about the fact that musicians often church serve more than one church. And because they were all on community choirs, they were serving more than one church and knew lots and lots of people and had huge networks. It meant that this small community experienced various kinds of losses in a very compacted amount of time. And that's just one area amongst so many that were losing this kind of number in such a short amount of time. And there being no real conversation about maybe we re really need to rethink our theological convictions. Maybe we need to think about universal health care. Like none of the conversations that were emerging from church spaces in general were to address this harm. A lot of it was to castigate the ones who were being um, who were dying and to uh, exclude them from community. And so for me, I started paying attention to a lot of the music that these musicians who were dying were creating. And lots of them were, you know, recording albums every year until they died. Okay. And unlike today, when I can write a song today and record it on my computer and I can put it on SoundCloud today, recordings in the 80s and the 90s took a long time. And so you're talking about people who were planning for futures while they were dying and creating music for futures that they may or may not sort of achieve, but also the volume with which a lot of them were recording at that time meant to or began to feel to me like perhaps there was something more just in the repetition of them creating music over and over again. And then I read this book by Darius Bost, um, Evidence of Being, which is about um, cultural production of Black um, queer men um, during the AIDS crisis. Mm -hmm. And he talks about poetry and he talks about journalism and he didn't leave out gospel music um, intentionally or like with a nefarious whatever, but reading him allowed me to actually reflect on the volume with which musicians in black churches were creating things to say this too is actually a response to the crisis regardless of the lyrical content, regardless of um, the duration of the songs that they created, the fact that they're creating with such a regularity, it seems to me, is about the same crisis that a lot of their friends are experiencing, people that they might see in the clubs when they go to the clubs, that there, there's a kind of 
um, alongside these other losses and these other what we would presume to be secular spaces, um, which are not actually secular, that there's this loss that's happening too in the church and we have to track these alongside one another to get a much more full sense for the kinds of loss we have allowed, allowed to happen right. um, without caring for the ones who are being lost. And even, yeah, I like that. And, you know, the creative imagination that's mm -hmm. taking place mm -hmm. as particularly these musicians about whom you speak are living in the midst of this crucifying death-like reality, right? Yeah. Yeah. Without yeah. the care that they would expect from a place that is supposed to give them care, a church they love that's not, as I said, loving them back. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's, I'm sorry to cut you off. It's uh, just, no. there's like a, we often imagine churches to be, you know, we imagine churches mega church. So, you know, 2,000, 3,000, 10,000 members. And it's like, yeah, most churches are 50, 100. Exactly. People. You're talking about church, you're talking about people whose uncles were the uh, were the pastors or grandparents were the pastors and you're talking about people within those small church communities being unkind to like their nephew or to their That's son exactly. to their grandson that the the quality of the unkindness was to me once i began to actually think about it and read about it and write about it it was the quality of unkindness that stood out to me the most because it was about being, it was harmful to the one who is dying. And it's also harmful to the ones who are refusing to be in community with the ones who are dying in any kind of real way that would be transformative. Like, even if you don't understand the, a virus, um, you can hold the hand of someone, you can be in the hospital room. And lots of parents saying, I'm not going to the hospital, I'm not going to the hospice, that's not my, do whatever you want to do with the body. Like, it's that kind of unkindness that for me is the thing that I'm trying to investigate, because that seems to me to be a product of a long history of refusing to care for Black folks in community and turning that unkindness that was a sort of social, political, and economic force outside, turning those practices on one another as opposed to continuing because it's exhausting to do so, but continuing to contend against those forces means that then you start to justify those forces and then you begin to act through and practice those same kinds of things. And so it's like, you know, when you think about a church who has 2000 members who don't really know the musician right. in an intimate way, it's like, that's a loss and that's terrible. But when you think about the church of 50 members where that's my nephew or that's mm -hmm. my son, and we're, we are all pretending that we didn't lose anyone or that they're just a sinner, that for me is like, oh, that's actually heartbreaking. No, you're you're so right, and 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 it, it is out of that period, Ashan, that I wrote my book on on black sexuality because yeah. of that. I yeah. mean, these churches were even refusing to bury people, mm -hmm. and my mm -hmm. uh, best friend, whom I called my cousin, because he's uh, 
such a close friend of mine who succumbed to complications from AIDS was in that same situation, yeah. right? Yeah. A church that he loved that didn't love him back. And, uh, and uh, there was really no funeral for him uh, in, in that church. Uh, so it, it leads me, you said to, to the last question, get you out of here, right? A little over. And this, mm -hmm. you talked about the way in which people practice, this becomes yeah. a practice. So you talk about practicing uh, to live into an ima our imagination. And even as you talk about this, how do we get to this place to imagine it, to use your language and otherwise possibility? Yeah. So I'm going to bring this together with another question so I can put this in question. You and I are working together in a project on film. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the way in which film uh, sort of helps us perhaps or not uh, in expanding our moral imaginary when it comes to race uh, and religion. So how, you know, we look at the films sort of going full circle in our conversation. We look at films from Black films from Till to an Afrofuturistic film like Wakanda Forever, yeah. uh, right? So how what becomes the role of film uh, in expanding, or does it have a role in expanding our uh, imagination or our moral imaginary? You call imagination an act of resistance. Yeah. Or just, just, just your thoughts on film and even your thoughts on the project in which we are now uh, a part of together. You know, I think that film like most media has the capacity to prompt our imagination. I tell my classes, the, teach, the young people that I teach, that I watch cartoons often, mostly, actually. I watch, and I watch cartoons that are for children, cartoons that, you know, you might not have heard of, but I love Craig of the Creek. I love Steven Universe. I love She-Ra and the Warrior Princesses. I love um, Kipo and the Age of the Wonder Beasts. I love cartoons that are about, there's one called Wonder Camp, Summer Camp Island, which I also have a soft spot for. I love them um, because they do for me what film has the capacity to do too, which is they prompt me to one, remember that things like empathy and care is a necessary thing that you have to constantly exercise in order to do it, that you are only empathetic when you practice it, you are only caring when you practice it. And that's something like the, these depictions that are produced for young people are often, they're often pedagogical insofar as they're trying to teach them this is how you be, this is how to be a good friend. This is how to say that something that your friend did hurts your feelings. This is how you say, I don't like you. I have boundaries. Don't talk to me anymore. Um, this is how you deal with bullies. Like, this is how you find community. This is how you deal with struggle. Um, this is how you love. This is how you have joy. This is what happiness is. And then I think that we can forget that as people who are not young people or people who are presumed to not need these lessons anymore. I watch these kinds of programs because they remind me of how necessary and essential these seemingly childish things are. Childishness perhaps isn't a problem, immaturity is. And I love film or I love some films and I love what film can do because film when made well has the same kind of capacity to prompt 
our thinking, it can prompt our longing, it can prompt our imagination. It can compel us to think, it can compel us to argue, it can compel us to try, it can compel us toward thinking that there might be more than just this. I remember the first time I saw Moonlight in the oh, theater, yeah. I didn't know what it was about. I kind of heard very much on the edges, oh, it's a queer film. I was living in Los Angeles and they said, it's a queer film about Black men. And I said, okay, I ain't got nothing to do. And I went in the theater and it was me and two other people. And I think it was like a Thursday night. And I was stunned by what it made me feel. And through the children, you know, everyone talks about the third act. Right. Sorry for saying it like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But my favorite act is act one with, With I think his name is Alex Hibbert. He did the work. And more than um, Mahashala Ali, who I love, But like, no, Alex did the work because he carried the film in silence for, um, he said almost no words the entire act one and his ability to convey emotion and desire and deep sadness and care and hope and grief was beautiful. I, you know, I'd never seen anything from the perspective to go back to the first or to the second question, I'd never seen something rendered from the position of a young person who was also dealing with and not understanding queerness rendered so well, rendered with such complexity and with such depth and with such care. And so for me, that's what film can do. It can, for the ones who are experiencing it, it can prompt us to think about what we've never actually experienced before, the things that we desire, the things that we hope for, the kinds of conversations we wish we would have had with um, people who were older than us. Um, And so like constantly hoping for and, and seeing and experiencing films that do that kind of work has been something that I've really enjoyed about the time that we have spent together as a cohort thinking about film, because I think we're constantly asking, how do these various films allow us to imagine? And what is the purpose and the role of the imagination? I think that white supremacy is an attack on thinking and think and imagination is thinking. And, and one of the primary ways it wants to attack thinking is by systematizing and saying that there is only one way to think and imagination gets in the way or it interrupts that idea of the one way or the only way or the only possibility. And it says, no, there are different ways to do this thing. This is why musicianship for me is important because these musicians are playing the same songs differently and they are enjoying and the 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 joy is in the difference between the way that I play this chord progression and the way you play this chord progression because that difference is where we can actually learn more about one another as musicians but also learn more about one another as people and it can prompt our imagination to other ways to think about other kinds of differences that we can inhabit. And I think that the films that we've been thinking through have been also like about trying to prompt us to think about one, what exists, but also what is possible. And so imagination is so integral to that process of really trying to recognize what has been put for us, 
what has been said is acceptable and allowable and what we can think and then also ways to to overcome or resist or to move against that. My goodness, uh, Dr. Ashan Crowley. First of all, for all you who are listening, you see why this project of which we are engaged on film is so exciting. And uh, with the persons that we have that are a part of it that we think with and imagine with. And you bring us full circle in this conversation as you talk about imagination, film prompting imagination, imagination as a source of resistance and difference. Yeah. as a joy. And so, Dr. Crowley, thank you, thank you for this conversation that prompts really our imagination and inspires us to have the courage to imagine. Uh, thank you for your work and your time and your witness. And thank you all for joining us in this just conversation. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. See you soon. <laughs>